we are today looking at suffering. So we had the weekend at home last weekend, which is a real time of joy and celebration. So the obvious next step is to go into Job and suffering, right? But we are in this Living in God's Story series, and we are now kind of opening up the book of Job, which is a complex book. It's a fascinating book, but it's a book that helps us engage with how do we respond to suffering. And I want to say from the outset that I do want us to be, and I'm sure the other speakers will be the same, want us to be pastorally sensitive, recognizing that there will be people here this morning who are really struggling. There will be people here this morning who are silently suffering. They might be going through deep pain, and nobody else is aware, but they are really struggling this morning. We want to do what we can to support one another and pray for one another and care for one another in this and be kind to each other as we engage with suffering. I'm sure almost all of us, if not all of us, can understand and sympathize and empathize with what it is to suffer. If you're not going through serious suffering now, I'm sure there's been times in your life where you can think of suffering. And frankly, if you don't suffer at all, then you can suffer from listening to me for the next 25 minutes talking about suffering. That will teach you, won't it? But what we do want to do is just help us point towards Jesus. Unfortunately, you're not going to get the answers and we're not going to give you all the solutions as to why suffering happens and exactly what we should do. But what we do want to do is help us look to Jesus and for us to know his love and his mercy and his tenderness and his care. We can't give you the answers, but we do hope you'll know his peace and his strength in your circumstances. So it is a hard subject. We recognize that and it's not going to be exhaustive and cover everything. We also recognize that for many followers of Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus, this is often a barrier in the faith. You know, why does God allow suffering? This is so often a significant thing that people just feel they can't step over. And we want to helpfully journey through that in the next few weeks. So we're going to look at the book of Job, as I said. And Job is likely to be the oldest book in the Bible. And it's wisdom literature, and that's important because up until now we've had narrative and history, whereas this is now more poetic language helping us understand kind of some of God's wisdom and some of the insight through this book. And we need to recognize that because if we try and read it like a textbook or too factually, we'll probably not be doing it justice. We need to recognize that it's a wisdom book full of wisdom. So there's three parts to the book of Job broadly. Today, I'm going to start, and we're going to look at Job's interaction. Then the best part of Job, the bulk of the book, is around his friends and how they interact with suffering. And then right at the end, we get some sense of what God says amidst the suffering. So I'm going to kick off today by looking at how Job engages with suffering. And I've actually asked Lincoln to come and read the passage. It's quite a healthy section of scripture. So Lincoln's going to come up and open by reading the Bible to us. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell on the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came to them to present himself with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give you all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Thank you, Lincoln. You might as well have read the rest of the Old Testament while you're at it, really, but there's a healthy passage and really helpful. I'm just going to pray for us as we unpack that this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you it's alive and it's full of truth and wisdom. We thank you that it speaks to us today. 
And we pray that we would receive from your word this morning, individually and as a church family. And also just pray for anyone this morning who is in it amidst an acute suffering. I pray that they would know your comfort and your strength from your word this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So I've called the talk today, Bad Things Happen to Good People. Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's about as profound as it gets, and you probably knew that already. But what I want to do is just unpack something of how bad things happen and how we are to respond So what we see in this passage is that bad things happen to Job. He goes through four calamities, and the first and the third are caused by other humans. They're caused by human interactions. And the second and fourth are natural disasters. And we see this in our world. You don't really need me to tell you this this morning, but suffering happens. Bad things happen by human causes and by natural disasters. Our world is full of conflict and pain and suffering. You don't need me to tell you that. We experience it in our daily lives. We experience it in our city. We experience it nationally and internationally. But we don't actually know much about Job in this book. But that's deliberate because although we see that he's from the man from the east, he's not in his right, he's not from one of God's people as such. What we see is that suffering is not limited to any tribe or people. Suffering is a human experience for all, so this wisdom is for all of us, that suffering happens. And as an aside, I think it's important to remember that, that others are suffering. Perhaps that's really obvious, but it's recognizing that others are suffering, others are going through hardship. Our suffering is real, our suffering matters, but when we get perspective and realize others are going through hard times, it helps us have strength to keep going ourselves. My mum is someone who I hugely admire and look up to. She's helped me massively over the years. I have huge respect to her. But often I'll ring her up and tell her some of the challenges I'm going through, and she'll then tell me about relatives or friends or family who are going through much harder things to give me some perspective. Not particularly pastorally sensitive, perhaps, but it does help me have an understanding that others are struggling, and it puts my pain, my struggle, in perspective. But bad things happen. Struggles happen, pain happens, life isn't fair. And as we look at this passage, we do get an insight into what the source of that is. We get a clear insight into what the source is. There's another spiritual realm at play. There's another spiritual realm at play. Now, it's important to say, I think, at this point that the translations are one that Lincoln used, and most of the translations refer to Satan. That's probably not the best translation. Most scholars, and I'm not grouping myself as a scholar, but most scholars would say Satan's not the most helpful description in this passage. The reason is, is because the Hebrews would not use a proper noun in this in terms of the original translations. It doesn't quite make sense grammatically. But then there's two kind of big theological questions. One is, why is Satan in the heavenly court? And why is God bargaining with him? What's more helpful to understand is this is likely to be symbolic of a Near Eastern courtroom where you had an emperor who was making the calls, a defendant like Job who was defending themselves, and an accuser, which is a better translation to Satan, who's accusing him, who's calling him out. But regardless, it doesn't really matter. Although that's the kind of poetic understanding, that's the wisdom that we're supposed to ascribe to. Regardless, we see that the devil is at work. There's alternative spiritual agendas at work. 
And sometimes this is obvious. Sometimes we see pain and struggle and think, that has to be demonic. That pain is so messed up. That is so difficult. That is so painful. There has to be another thing at play. We see that time and time again. We see some real evil and we think there must be another agenda at play. Sometimes it's obvious, but it's also subtle. And as I was preparing, I was just thinking about the last week with Halloween. And I know there's a whole range of perspectives, but I do think that sometimes what's meant to be playful and unintentionally, not intended to be harmful, can cause, unintentionally, we can embrace and celebrate the darkness. We can celebrate and promote the evil and darkness of the world in times like Halloween where it's meant to be playful, it's meant to be innocent fun, but if we're not careful we can enter into it subtly. I remember years ago I was at a school performance and you might be surprised to hear but I wasn't one of the star actors and yeah you were shocked by that I can tell and um, and we were in a performance and the people not involved were backstage in one of the classrooms and I had a small part to play. I was probably like the head of a donkey or something. But anyway, I was out the back. And the, some of the other kids who weren't involved decided with pen and paper, we were only seven or eight years old, to make a Ouija board and to play a game of Ouija board. And I stepped away. I didn't want to be part of it. But in that performance, the lights went out. The performance was a mess. The tech went down. The whole thing was absolute chaos. And just a reminder to me ever since then that there is agendas of the evil realm at work. I don't think that was coincidence. Sometimes it's obvious evil, but sometimes it's more subtle. We need to be aware of that. There's an agenda from the alternative spiritual realm. Satan is at work. What we also see in this passage is that God is still in ultimate control. The emperor, God, allows the accuser to speak and act. He allows Satan to speak and act. And that poses some huge questions, right? Why does God allow him to speak and act? Put another way, why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? Why is God permitting this suffering? And if I had the answer to that, I'd be the richest man on the planet. I wouldn't be wasting my time with you guys. But we don't get the answer in Job. Throughout the whole book, there's glimpses at the end, but we don't get the answer to why is there suffering. Job is much more, how do we live and act within the suffering? Sorry if you were wanting the answer, but no one in the history of man has given a watertight answer to why there is suffering. A few quick thoughts I do want to just say as we handle this subject. A, quick, a few quick thoughts. And how do we handle suffering? How do we handle this complex question? The first thing to say when someone is going through suffering, let's not give glib answers. If someone's suffering, they don't need me to tell them that you need to have more faith. Pray more, trust God. That might be the right thing to do, but let's just be careful not to overly simplify things. Pain and struggle is real. And let's not be, give glib answers and think it'll all be okay. Let's point them towards Jesus and hope in him. The second thing to say is suffering is suffering. And this kind of contradicts what I was saying earlier, but recognizing that everyone's suffering is real. Let's not compare our suffering. Let's not think that my suffering is less or more than yours. It's not a competition. Let's not compare. I often 
remember when someone said to me that if we had all our pains and took them to the middle, we might end up taking our own pain back because when we see what other people are going through, realize ours isn't so bad. But all of us have pain and struggle. Let's not compare. Let's recognize that suffering is real. Suffering is suffering. But let's also recognize that we should be able to bring our pain to the church. Let's be people who are kind and welcoming and embracing those who are struggling. We do that brilliantly, but let's continue to welcome people with their hurts and their pains. Sorry if you've not felt able to do that. Sorry if your community or the church family hasn't felt a safe space to do that. But let's be a place where we're able to bring our hurts and pain. Sorry if a church is a cause of your pain, but let's be a place where we can welcome one another regardless of our hurts and pains, where we can draw closer to Jesus through one another. And also, let's just say that we should be able to bring our pain to God. If we can't bring our pain to God, then where can we take it? But suffering happens. Bad things happen. There is pain and struggle in the world. I can't give an answer to why there is suffering, but I can say we can look to Jesus and draw hope from him. But we also see in this passage is that bad things happen to good people. He was righteous and holy. The writer of Job is at pains to say that he is righteous and holy. He's a good guy. He's without sin. He's not perfect, but his sin has not caused the pain and suffering that he's experienced. And it's worth saying that there are consequences to sin and struggle. If one of my children comes up to me and says, in tears, you know, my brother hit me. And I say, okay, but what happened first? Well, I threw a car at his face. You think, well, that's kind of a consequence of what you've done. I'm not saying that's okay, but there's an implication for what's happened. And if we magnify that, we recognize that in our behavior, sometimes there are consequences and implications of our behavior. But this isn't certainly always the case. He was a holy and righteous man. And the writer of Job is determined that we understand that that was not the cause of his suffering. And we also see that he was a successful, a wealthy man. He had a lot going for him. His life was good. And like any good story, this is setting us up for pain and the struggle that he will endure. It's helping us understand that there's going to be a contrast with the pain and struggle that he's going through. But we are meant to see that he's wealthy, he's successful, that life is good, that he has a prosperous and blessed life. He has seven sons, which in these days was a perfect amount of sons. He has three women, which is less than men, a sign of blessing. He has female donkeys, which apparently are most valued in this time. A large number of servants. He has feasting and drinking, partying, numerous houses. Life is great, the perfect family. Makes you feel sick, doesn't it, to be honest? Just like my family, really, yeah. Just like the the Flanders on the Simpsons. But we're meant to understand that he was a blessed man. His life was good. That things were going well for him. And readers would have associated this blessing with his righteousness. And a key accusation in this passage is that he was only following God for the blessings that he would receive. And the true test for Job and so often the true test for us is when things get ugly, when things are taken away from us, how do we respond? And the writer wants us to see that Job's faith is not based on how God blesses him. His faith isn't dependent on what God does for him. His faith isn't dependent on what he gets from God. 
He's a wealthy man. He has so much going for him. But when that is taken away, his faith is still there. In this passage, it says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and has taken away. We arrive with nothing, and we take nothing with us. The stuff that he has, the blessings that he receives, the different things of the world are not sufficient for him. They're not the blessing that he was after. To ultimately understand that it's all found in Jesus. Success and wealth and prosperity, good things, are never enough. They're never the ultimate answer. I can so easily think, well, when I get this promotion, when I have this, when I receive this, when this happens, I'll feel okay. And surely, like me, when you get that stuff, you actually feel flat and you feel empty because it's never enough blessing and fulfillment is always found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing on this earth is going to fully satisfy us. It's all found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So when things are taken away from Job, actually he's richer because he's drawing closer to Jesus. I was listening to a podcast recently and it was talking about how Years gone by, burnout used to be caused by overwork. So you would see these videos of people dying at their desk after 15, 20 hour days and just killing themselves for overwork. But now they're saying that burnout is actually caused so often by two things, overabundance and self-creation. Overabundance where basically back in the day we could only shop till five o'clock and we could only be there till five, we could shop to our heart's content, but once we get out those doors, things stop. But now we can pull out our phone and shop as much as we want. Now on Christmas Day, if we didn't get what we want, we can order stuff that afternoon. The overabundance is draining us and destroying us and tiring us out, it's causing burnout. And then equally, it talks about self-creation and it says that where we try and create ourselves and creates a positive image of ourselves, it's tiring us out. So again, for many of us, years gone by, perhaps you still do this, you go for a meal and you just enjoy the meal. You go for a holiday and you just enjoy the holiday. But now what happens if we're not careful is we go and we're concerned about how that's perceived by others on social media. We're concerned by how others are perceiving us. We're not just enjoying the moment, but we're concerned about how we're presenting ourselves to others. And it's tiring us out. It's draining us with self-creation. Because what should be pleasure is becoming work. But what the book of Job does is it challenges our security. It challenges what stuff in this world is fully satisfying. What stuff in this world is the stuff that we're clinging to. Where is our security? What are the stuff of the world is the stuff we're holding on to? When this stuff is taken away, what are we left with? And this is speaking to an audience where life was hard. The vast majority of people were in poverty, engaging in wars and injustice. Life was hard. When we think about many people across our world, the majority of people are going through hardship and struggle. For those of us who are relatively affluent and flourishing in life, we are the minority in the society. But life was hard for this audience, and it takes calamity and hardship to realize what is important. It takes devastation to realize what is important to us, to realize that God is the hope. 
is dependence on God that comes when things are taken away and our faith grows and matures from things being taken away from us. It's through the storms, when things are stripped back, when things are taken from us, that our faith actually grows. We increasingly depend on him. So often it's suffering and hardship that allows us to recognize that the stuff of this world isn't going to sustain us. It's the hardships that allow us to remember what's important in life. We often ask, don't we, what we're going to want to think of in our deathbed? What is it we're going to want to hold to on our deathbed? But if we're desiring a rich relationship with God, if we're desiring to know God more today than yesterday, then realizing actually we realize what's important to us, less of the earthly things, more of the blessing associated with knowing Jesus and intimacy with him. Hardship draws us closer to God. I know my own journey, that the hardest times of my life are also the times I felt closest to God, intimacy with God. When things are stripped away, so often it's allowing me to get closer to God, to recognize I'm actually drawing closer to be near him. Hard times allow us to increasingly depend on God. I was listening to a podcast by a guy called Steve Bartlett recently, and he was talking about how everyone he's interviewed, he interviews these successful leaders, these successful influencers and people who are running big businesses and successful enterprises. And he asked them, you know, why they're so successful. He says, every single one of them, their journey, their childhood has been hard. It's been painful, but it's grown the skills in them, the fruit in them for them to be successful. The same is true for us. So often the hard times, the difficult times, a key preparation to allow us to be more like Jesus, to depend on him. You see, true blessing isn't wealth or prestige or success or anything else. It's intimacy with God. The less we have of earthly things, the more we depend on him, the richer we are. The more we're stripped back, the more we realize we depend on him. When we go through hard times, when we go through struggle, when we go through pain, we realize that actually the richness is intimacy with God, dependence on God, realizing our security can be in him. It allows us to draw closer to him. We have a choice to make to keep stepping in towards him, even when things are taken away from us. I want us to watch a video clip from The Chosen. It's about when Jesus walks on water and the storms are happening and the disciples are literally fearing for their lives. But I thought this was a really powerful image of what's going on here, of how we kind of turn to God and depend on him more. So the disciples are literally fearing for their lives on this boat and then they see Jesus walking towards them. So let's just watch a short clip if that's okay. But you're healing those strangers! Why do you think I allowed trials? I don't know! They prove the genuineness of your faith. They strengthen you. This is strengthening you. And Eden. Keep your eyes on me. I'm 
go. I got you. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Don't let me go. I have much planned for you, Simon. Including hard things. Just keep your eyes on me. I promise. Sorry, it wasn't as clear as I was hoping, but hopefully you got some sense of what was going on. But Peter is really struggling as he's walking out towards Jesus, and then he's sinking. And of course, it's just how it's dramatized. That's not the actual events. That wasn't someone filming Jesus, of course. But he's sinking, and this man who is quite confident and self-assured before is saying, don't leave me. I'll need you. I need you. Then going to full dependence on him. When things were taken away, he was leaning towards him and saying, I need to be dependent on you, I want to lean on to you, don't let me go, don't let me go. And that's what happens when things are taken away from us, when we hit life storms, we come to God and say, don't let me go, and we know his intimacy. And with Peter, we see that Jesus says, I have great plans for you. He leads the early church as significant things, but he needs to humble him and allow him to be more deeper connected to Jesus. In the book of Job, we see little glimmer of hope we see sorry little insight in terms of the hardship him going through being for any particular purpose we see that with other characters throughout scripture where their struggle and their pain is for preparation it's for growth it's for god to use them in profound ways but with job we don't see huge amounts of insight like that he just went through hardship for hardship's sake what we do see though is years later we have this book that we are learning from from his experience this is what happens. We grow through preparation. We grow through struggle so that God can use us for things in the future. He wants us to draw closer to him in the storms of life. Bad things happen to good people. So how do we respond? I want to just suggest three things that we can do when the storms of life hit us. And of course, this is an exhaustive list. This isn't everything you could possibly do, but three things we see from the life of Job that we can do when the storms hit us. The first thing is to keep our integrity, to walk with integrity. Throughout these storms, he couldn't be faltered. He kept himself above reproach. His wife even said, why didn't you curse God? You'd effectively be better off dead than going through his pain and struggle. But he kept his faith. He kept his integrity. We're only ever responsible for how we react to situations. We're only ever responsible for how we respond to situations. Sometimes we think, well, because they've done this, they deserve this. Because this has happened, I deserve to act in this way. No, no, no. We keep our integrity. We keep following Jesus. We keep our righteousness before, before him. The word integrity comes from the word integer, which means oneness, which means wholeness. And it's helpful to think, I think, that basically we shouldn't compartmentalize our lives. We shouldn't have ourselves here on Sunday and in a different way on Monday at the workplace and a different place on Wednesday with our friends and colleagues. We're consistent. That's what integrity means. It means consistency. The best illustration I've heard around this was around the Titanic. And the Titanic apparently was deemed the unsinkable ship because it had chambers. And the theory was that if one of the chambers filled with water, the other chambers would keep the boat afloat. But we know what happened. The Titanic filled with water and the ship went down. If we try and compartmentalize our life when things 
go wrong, when we lack integrity, the ship will go down. And if there was ever a time in our churches and our nation for integrity, it'd be now. Even in the last few weeks, we've seen again many church leaders falling. We've seen across our nations integrity lacking. It's time for us to have integrity no matter what's going on around us. No matter what's happening in the storms of life, our challenge is to be responsible for how we respond to act with integrity, to act with godliness. The second thing I want to suggest is we want to be thankful. In the last verse that Lincoln read, it said, Job humbly asked, how can we accept good and not evil? And that's almost the opposite question of why God. It's okay to cry out to God. We see that in Lamentations. We see that in Psalms. We see that throughout Scripture. But it's okay to cry out to God. But we're also called to be thankful in all circumstances. We're called to be thankful in all circumstances. How can Job accept good and not evil to be thankful for things that God is blessing with, thankful for ways he is providing him with? I was reminded of this recently. I was away a few weeks back and I was driving in Carlisle. I wasn't going to mention that, but I was actually at Ross and Lydia's wedding, which is why I was there, just for information. So I was there and it was dark and wet and it was a horrible night. I'm sure that's very unusual in Carlisle, but that's what it was that night. And I was driving along and I suddenly realized this is quite embarrassing, but could have been a lot worse. I thought I was going the wrong way on a one-way system and a bus was coming towards me. This is unlike me, right? I'm a brilliant driver, just in case you want to get in the car with me. But it was flipping terrifying, I have to say. And I came to a grinding halt, and the bus came to a grinding halt, and the bus driver gave me a few choice words, which I won't repeat. But I remember just being quite shaken up by it, by thinking, God, you've literally saved my life today. And I remember at the start of the day praying over protection, but thanking God for how he's protected me. So often we look to things God isn't doing, but how are we thanking him for ways he is protecting us? He is providing for us. He is blessing for us. It changes our perspective when we're people of thankfulness. Of course, it's okay to ask God why. Of course, it's okay to wrestle and question him. We're also called to be thankful. And finally, we look to Jesus. As we live with suffering, we look to Jesus How do we cope with an evil world? We look to Jesus. And like all scripture, this passage, this book of Job points to Jesus. He is the ultimate, perfect, righteous man who didn't sin, but took our sin on his shoulders. Despite him having no sin, despite him being completely perfect and holy, he was killed and crucified completely unjustly. There was deep pain and evil and betrayal of the world that he took on his shoulders. He knew what it was to embrace the darkness of the world. He knew what it was to be abandoned, to feel abandoned by the Father. And he died naked on a cross. Naked he came to the world and naked he died. Resurrected forevermore so he can experience our pain, to know our emotions, to live the life in our shoes so that he can experience it and take on his shoulders and to account for all our feelings and emotions, all our rage and frustrations. He's been in our shoes, he's walked on this world, and he wants to take our sin and suffering on his shoulders because he came to rescue us. He's been there, he's walked this earth, he's lived a blameless life, and he wants to take all the things of this world on his shoulders as we come to him with our struggles and pains. I'm going to pray and then I'll hand back to the band. Yeah, Father, we 
come to you, and I'm aware that there will be people this morning who are going through deep pain and struggle. And we ask that their situations would change, that you would turn a corner and things that feel dark and broken and impossible. But above and beyond that today, we pray that I'd know your presence and your comfort and your peace and your joy. I pray that anyone who right now is in the quietness of the heart calling out to you, crying out to you, I pray that they would know just your presence so closely and so intimately right now. Holy Spirit, would you be here? Would you minister amongst us? Would you take our pain on your shoulders? Would you comfort us, we ask? Amen.